0: So imagine a world, a world close enough to touch, taste, smell, and experience, a world right at your fingertips, a world not fractured and broken, a world not moving in every direction but moving together, unified in a common Direction, experiencing the blessing of creation, and each time this year we gather around and we begin to tell stories of the coming of the Christ Child, Messiah, in the manger. Take this little tree, everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. How many people have seen that before? David Litton and I were talking before and he said, it's possible that Linus has told this story to more people than anyone else ever in history. Isn't that pretty amazing? To say that your gifts don't matter. Here's a cartoon artist who's been able to tell the story of the coming of Christ for generations. And it's a story that's been told and retold throughout history. Both Luke and Matthew tell these nativity narratives. But there is another narrative buried deep within the book of Revelation that is more of a cosmic Christmas, a slightly different perspective of the story of the coming of Christ the King. I call it Christmas in the cosmos. And before I tell you that story, I want to do a little bit of work on the front end to give you some framework for the book of Revelation to help you better understand what's happening because when you have a little bit of framework, you can jump into the middle of the story and kind of understand what's going on so it begins to make a little bit more sense. Then I want to talk about this cosmic Christmas story and then I want to move on to why it's so important because I think this book of Revelation might be one of the most important Books in all of Scripture for Christians living today in the 21st century in America. And so I want to begin there. It's probably the most misunderstood and misinterpreted book in all of the Bible, not just today, but throughout history. And where it's not misinterpreted, it's typically just simply avoided. The book was not added to the canon until the 4th century AD and it wasn't widely accepted until about the 5th century. One of the greatest reasons that it had so much trouble actually getting into the canon because no one knew who the author was. It's not we're almost positive not John who writes the gospel. It's another John who they call the Revelator or John of Patmos or John the Divine. He has several different names, but most likely he is an elder or a bishop over the churches of Asia Minor, these seven churches that begin in this book. And so because of its unknown origin and author, it was struggled to kind of make it into the canon that we consider scripture. The great reformer Martin Luther had no use for revelation. He thought it was something that needed to be taken out of Scripture completely. Here's what he said. I consider Revelation to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is. To say nothing of keeping it. For me, this is the reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Wow. Thank you, Martin. And when it comes to conversations around the book of Revelation, they generally move towards the end times, specifically the Antichrist and the rapture, which, by the way, are phrases and terms that don't actually even occur in the book of Revelation. It's been used and abused throughout the centuries. Even Martin Luther, who had no use for the book, found it very helpful in proving that the Pope was the Antichrist. But don't feel too bad for the Pope because he used the book of Revelation to prove, in fact, it was Martin Luther who was the Antichrist. Everyone from Henry Kissinger to Joseph Stalin, Hitler, JFK, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump have been labeled the Antichrist, and given the number of the beast. And for centuries, this book has been widely speculated on its meaning and what it actually was talking about. But thankfully, in the 20th century, we cracked the code. And the climax of Revelation is a story that points to the events of the 1960s and 1970s, culminating with the reign of the beast, a supercomputer in Brussels, Belgium. The book was used to justify wars like the Crusades and predict the second coming of Christ, which Harold Camping knew for certain that it would be September 6th, 1994. However, on September 7th, 1994, he decided he probably needed to rethink his date because either he was left behind or he was wrong. And so the new date was May 20th, 21st, 2011. Only adding to the confusion is the dangerous dispensational theology of popular books like the late great planet Earth and Left Behind. And so, if this is all that is kind of wrapped up in the book of Revelation, what really is Revelation about? And we'll get to that question in a minute, but I want to start with how you read the book of Revelation. First of all, Revelation is Jewish apocalyptic literature, similar to, if you know anything about the Qumran scrolls from the Dead Sea, similar to the War Scroll. Its first word in Revelation is apocalypsis, and it simply means an unveiling, as if you were pulling back the curtains to see a world that previously only existed in your imagination. So this Jewish apocalyptic Writing is an unveiling of things that were to come and a critique of things that had happened. It is also a prophetic letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, specific churches in a very specific context at a very specific time. Secondly, Revelation is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire and thus all empires. We'll get to more of that next week. Third, Revelation. Um, everything in the book is symbolic. Everything in the book is symbolic. From the dragon with seven heads to the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, from the fire, lake of fire to the bejeweled city, everything is symbolic. And then finally, It is written in the style of Greco-Roman theater. This is important. It's written in the style of Greco-Roman theater, complete with drama, tragedy, comedy, and chorus. And the book opens with John's encouragement that the book be read aloud. Think of it as a stage play, something that is to be acted out, something that is to be heard. And so I'm going to invite you, we're going to kind of walk through one of the chapters here where the drama really begins, but I'm going to ask you to play a part in the drama. Um, There's a, a slide, the first slide with yellow writing on it. When we get to this slide, I'm going to read the part in white, which says, worthy is the lamb who was slain, and then together... All of us will say to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Capish? Hey. So let, let's start. But, but remember, this is to be echoed throughout the heavens. And so when we say it, we need to say it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So when we get to that part, it's your turn to be part of the story. So, Revelation chapter 5 is really where the drama begins. And so if you imagine this setting, the lights come up slowly And at center stage, there is one who is seated on the throne. And the music begins to build. And the one seated on the throne is holding a scroll. And the scroll is sealed. And the elder who is taking John on this tour begins to look around to find someone who is worthy to open the scroll. And you wonder, well, why is the scroll so important? Well, there's something written inside, and I'm going to ruin the story for you because we're not going to get to that part of what's written inside till chapter 11. But I just want to share with you what that is. It's going to say inside, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And so the one seated on the throne is holding the scroll and it's sealed and the elder begins to look around to find one who is worthy to open the scroll and he begins to look in heaven and on earth and no one is found who can open the scroll and John is standing at a distance watching this and he begins to weep. He's sobbing bitterly because hope is lost because if no one can open that scroll, then Caesar is still Lord. If no one can open that scroll, Rome still wins the day. If no one opens that scroll, hope is lost. And then as the music builds and the tension builds and you feel the drama coming to its climax, the elder looks to John and he says, Stop! Don't weep! Look! The lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John turns and looks, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. And the lamb is covered with blood and its throat has been slit and it looks like it's dead. But yet somehow the lamb is still alive and there is the throne with God Almighty holding the scroll and the lamb who was slain and the camera begins to pan out and there are four living creatures surrounding the throne and then it pans out a little bit more and now there are 24 elders who are surrounding the throne And then it pans out a little bit more as this echo of worship carries throughout the heavens. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels are seen. And all of them together are saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and praise, and it pans out a little bit more, and now all of creation is in this picture. Every living creature together says to Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down, and worshipped. Do you see how the book works? It's a production that's to be read aloud, something that could be acted out together. But the story is not in a linear format. We typically think of a story occurring in sequential order. Joe wakes up in the morning. Joe opens his fridge. He's out of milk. Joe gets dressed. Joe drives to the store. Joe picks up milk. Joe buys the milk. Joe comes home. Joe fixes breakfast. And the story makes sense, but the book of Revelation is not arranged that way. And so now, kind of having a little bit of a grasp of what's happening in the book, I want to jump into this cosmic Christmas story. It's in Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in the pain in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment she was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And then war broke out. Heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is Christmas in the cosmos. And my guess is driving through your neighborhoods this time of year, this is still a yard nativity display. You are still not been able to witness. You haven't seen a woman standing on the moon with a dragon crouching, waiting to snatch up the baby. But this story is important because this is the cosmic battle for supremacy between the Satan and the Son of Man. A battle that began at the dawn of creation in a garden. A battle born out of a small little Seemingly insignificant lie. God is holding out on you. There is something, there is something else out there, a better way, another world that God does not want you to experience. God does not want you to be like him. The garden. The world as it should be. Man and woman are at peace with God and at peace with creation, and at peace with one another. Notice it's original blessing that covers man in the garden, not original sin. But man and woman believe the accusations made about God by the serpent, the Satan, the accuser of our brothers, is the phrase from Revelation chapter 12. Peace is fractured, and the cosmic battle for supremacy has begun. The dragon has eaten its first child, actually two, both Adam and Eve devoured by the dragon. And they find themselves on the garden, on the outside looking in, and eastward, The slow march eastward begins, further and further from the presence of God. And now the world they find themselves in is a world that has been shaped and formed in the image of the Satan, in the image of the accuser, a world full of accusation. Shalom is shattered. And our leading question, did the garden really happen like that? is now replaced by the much more ominous and important question. Doesn't the garden happen every single day? Do we see evidence of it every single time we open a newspaper or turn on the TV? And that the dragon has been bent on devouring each and every child born into this world every day since. He is the the Satan, the dragon, the accuser of our brothers, who leads the world astray, seducing men and women into following him. Yes, we would call it sin, but it is so entrenched in our soul. It's the little lie The belief that God is holding something back from us. There are some things that God does not want us to have. This abundant, full life that was promised, that looks so appealing that we give way to the lie. And we learn a really important lesson once we're outside of the garden. We learn that sin kills just as we were told, but in ways that we never imagine. And the, res- the reason that sin is so hopeless is it because it brings out the response and the, the knowledge that death is imminent. That the promise of sin was that death would follow and now we're brought face to face with that truth. So, in the midst of our despair, we cling and long for the hope that there is a better way. And so there's a woman standing on the moon clothed with the sun about to give birth and there is the dragon crouching waiting for Her to give birth, and just as she gives birth, the child is snatched up to heaven and seated on the throne next to God Himself. And this mother that was about to give birth is not representative of Mother Mary of Jesus, but rather representative of the mother of all humanity. That she has been having children for ages, and the dragon has been devouring them, but this child. This child who is going to come into the world is different than the ones that came before. This child is the promised Messiah. This child will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This child will be different. And this child is snatched up, he's seated next to God as the dragon begins this battle. He begins a battle and the music builds as he waits. And the tension of what will happen to this child as it's born. And then he's taken up into heaven. But the story doesn't end there. This battle breaks out in the heavens. With Kalechus excuse me, cataclysmic ramifications. Michael and his angels engage in a battle, and the angel, the dragon, and his angels begin to fight back. And blow for blow, they trade their punches, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, and finally the final blow comes, and the dragon is hurled down to earth. And throughout the cosmos is heard, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and all who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Who is it that's conquered? The dragon? It's this slain lamb, this lamb that looks like he's dead, who's been sacrificed, but yet somehow, somehow he's still alive. And the story sets up as this massive drama. And you have the prologue where the cosmic stage is set, where man and woman are at peace with God, at peace with creation, at peace with one another. And you have your protagonist, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain. You have your antagonist, the Satan, the accuser of our brothers. And in Act 1, you have Satan, who's on the move. The action picks up. And he's seducing nations and individuals to come and follow and be a part of the empire. To be a part of, of what's happening in this world, to create a culture of idolatry, evil, chaos, and a culture of death, i.e. Rome, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. He's convincing individuals, enticing them, leading them, telling them that Babylon and Rome is the only possible way. And then in Act 2, the prophet speaks, and he calls churches to bear faithful witness to Christ and the seductive power of Babylon. Act 3, God brings his judgment in the powerful, idolatrous culture of death, which is Babylon is now facing divine judgment. In Revelation 18, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon here is a stand-in for Rome. Because if you're writing to people in the Roman Empire, you cannot say Rome. And so you need a stand-in. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become the dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunken the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Ultimately, the result of this divine judgment, the lamb defeats the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. But ultimately, death itself is defeated. Then in Act 4, God renews and restores the fallen creation. Babylon, Assyria, Rome are consumed by New Jerusalem, the bejeweled city, whose gates are never shut, whose leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. By the way, as they measure out the city at the end of Revelation, they say it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia, which in our day equates to 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, which was roughly the size of the Roman Empire at this time. It's as if this new Jerusalem, this bejeweled city, replaces the powerful empire of Rome. And since peace with God was fractured, God has been on this mission to redeem and make whole. And the result of life outside of Eden was now man and woman did not see oneness with each other. They saw the other. They saw the differences. And Cain, Cain who builds the first city, on the other side looks at his brother and he does not see someone he's one with. Instead he sees other and enemy and he kills his brother. And he goes and he builds a city. And every city since has been built in the image of Cain. But in the midst of the story, there's the promise of a better city. God calls out of these people this man named Abraham. And Abraham was a nomad and he was living in tents. And it says that he began searching for something. He he was searching for something that he had been promised, a city. A better city. A a city not built in the image of Cain, not in the image of the accuser. But a better city. And ultimately, Abraham dies before he gets there. But it says he gets to see it from afar. It's almost as if he could just reach out and touch it. He's almost... There, there's a better world, there's a better way to live. There's a better story. And Abraham lives his whole life, never getting to see it. And nation after nation, throughout the annals of history, have come and gone. Babylon is not the only one. Every nation always falls. But the promise and the hope of revelation is that the kingdom of God, the reign of the Lamb, goes on forever ever, and has no end. And it's that city, that bejeweled city, the new Jerusalem that we have been invited to be a part of. Come, because its gates are never shut. And there's a river flowing from the temple and on each side are these trees and their leaves are for the healing of the nations. And John gives us just a brief glimpse of the world that could be. Not just a world that's promised some day far off in the future, but a world that we create when we follow the Lamb. I know. I know that sounds kind of like a pipe dream. It's not possible. But what you and I confess, when we say we believe that Jesus is Lord, is we confess that the lamb who was slain has conquered and his kingdom will never end. And it goes on and on forever. So what is Revelation really about? As we end, Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world. Rather, it is about faithful discipleship in this world. Revelation is primarily the good news about Christ, the Lamb of God, who shares God's throne is the key to past, present, and future, leading to the undying hope in the midst of unrelenting evil and oppressive empire. Ultimately, Revelation is about following the Lamb into new creation. And so I want to leave you with these words from Revelation chapter 11. It's the words that were written on the scroll. The words that echo throughout the pages of history. The words that will never see an end. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign ever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. Father, we thank you for the reminder that this world is not the only option. There is a better world a world we have been called to be co-creators of with you, the Lamb of God slain and risen to life. And Father, I pray that we would find our hope in Christ and Christ alone, that we would join with your angel armies in this battle with humongous ramifications this battle for supremacy, this battle that you have won and yet we still see evidences and outbreaks of on this earth. May we, may we be your faithful witnesses in this world. May we follow the Lamb into new creation. And may we proclaim together with the angels. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen.